Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm founder and host, Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or RO, is a community of wellbeing managers from organizations around the globe. At RO, we develop you as a wellbeing leader, giving you a powerful support network, professional development, and workplace wellbeing solutions so that you can focus on giving your employees the right support at the right time. To be stronger, better, and faster at improving wellbeing in your workplace, professional development is key. These discussions on workplace wellbeing are designed to inspire, share ideas, and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on. The interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Wellbeing Wednesday webinars. In this episode, we chat to an expert on ADHD and explore how workplaces can better support neurodiversity. It's estimated that over 280,000 Kiwis have ADHD. People from all walks of life and all professions live and work with ADHD. But we don't really talk about how businesses can lead for and accommodate different neurotypes. I'm joined by ADHD advocate, coach and facilitator, Callum McCurdy. Together, we discuss how we can create work environments that understand the value that people with ADHD and other forms of neurodiversity can bring and how to support them to thrive. A wee bit about my background is I have had uh, 22 years in and around uh, HR and sort of that, that people profession. Um, working my way up, uh, I actually fell into HR accidentally, applying for the wrong job. I had such fun in the interview that they gave me a job that I wasn't necessarily qualified for. Um, and I think there's a wee bit of um, the, the ADHD and dys- dyslexia in there as well. So uh, I'm 45 years of, uh, of age. Uh, I've been obviously had, I've been neurodiverse my entire life, which all neurodivergent people are, but I've only been aware of my ADHD for three years. And I always knew that I was dyslexic. Uh, I later found out that I have dyscalculia as well, which is essentially dyslexia with numbers. And they were a real issue with school, but but thankfully, my ADHD, which I didn't know I had, allowed me to cater for that, not only in the masking and the hiding that I did of my inabilities, but also my abilities too. But there, there was a big coping mechanism in that around, especially with ADHD, where the masters of disguise were really good at appearing normal and that we fit in, whereas internally, um, there's a whole lot of struggle and term- turmoil and chaos uh, going on in there. And I think that's really key for part of the conversation we're going to have today, Sarah, is around mental health and well-being and the hidden side of hidden diversity as well. Because while we can hide what's going on for us, sometimes we don't necessarily hide what that manifests as and how that comes out and the struggles, etc. My take on ADHD in particular around neurodiversity is... I believe in, or my, my stance is, um, I guess my mindset is AD, I'm ADHD positive. Not that I've just tested positive for it, but also I have a real positive um, tilt on what that means. Being that all the labels, all the neurodiverse labels that exist, and those that are probably coming out of the woodwork as well, as things sort of morph a wee bit, they all have this fear, shame, and stigma attached to them. And there's a bunch of stereotypes, most of which are completely wrong. Like if we focus on ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, it's not a disorder. Um, there's a wee bit of hyperactivity in some of us, but not everybody has that. So there used to be ADD, which out without the hyperactivity, but it's all sort of been subsumed into the, the one label now. But it doesn't mean that everybody's hyperactive. I certainly have 
I wasn't a hyperactive kid. I was a bit fidgety, um, but I wasn't bouncing around all the time. But I certainly have a hyperactive mind and I have a need to release energy. So I go running in the hills for hours and that's essentially my meditation. It's like active meditation and I have to use up some almost nervous energy in order for me to be able to focus and get clarity and process what's going on in the world, et cetera. Now, the attention deficit part of it is the biggest misnomer of it all. Um, There's no deficit of attention. In fact, if anything, there's probably a deficit of the ability to pay attention to one thing at a time because we're always, like we're the the hunters, like we're noticing the movement, the, the, the sound, what else is going on. And that's not because... We're not paying attention, but actually sometimes we need to move or need to be distracted in order to pay attention. So I just um, look around here. I do a lot of online coaching and I have a silent drum pad and I use drumsticks and I tap tap out on those every now and then. I've got fidget rings. I've got a whole lot of little things that I um, play with just so that I can pay attention because if I'm making little figurines out of blue tack while I'm talking to someone, I'm able to really focus in on that person. But if I was told to sit still, which I was at school, I'm not concentrating because all I'm doing is focusing on that urge and that um, energy that's building up like a pressure cooker in order to blurt something out or say that, right? And so I think this is the, the understanding we need to, to, um, to come to. And so I also realized that, getting back to your question, trying to circle back to it, is that um, with so many years in HR and um, in HR leadership, leading and being the champion of a whole lot of processes that actually never made sense to me, I realized that I've got all this deep knowledge in how organizations function and how people, how we have a series of processes which are, are designed for that middle or the beer belly of the bell curve. Um, and I sit at the edges of the bell curve and people who are neurodiverse are at the edges of the bell curve. And those processes don't work for us all the time. Uh, And so as a result, it means that um, we're outliers or we can be seen as problem children or disruptive or we have our performance plateaus or peaks and troughs, often that we can't necessarily explain as well. And the key with uh, that is that while neurodiversity is an umbrella term, um, it like the neurodiverse conditions within that or categories within that are quite diverse in themselves. And so we can't sort of pigeonhole people. There's a lot of crossover. So people with dyslexia often have ADHD. People with autism often have ADHD. Not all the time, but autism and dyslexia aren't necessarily things that always go together. And they show up differently. But also the combination of whatever's going on for you means that it manifests differently in yourself. So you have an entirely different uh, experience. and so. Our workplaces are designed for this sort of traditional or one-size-fits-most approach um, to people, and we don't necessarily fit in that. Now, I know those processes really, really well, and when I discovered that I had ADHD and, you know, the penny dropped, I was like, hang on, I'm not that special. I've spent my life hiding at work, um, and I see people hiding as well. So one of my – if you want to go with the cheesy tagline that is – it's associated with neurodiversity, one of my superpowers is that I see people show up. I see energy and I see people hiding as well. And so I'm really good at connecting with them because I know I have empathy in what it feels like to be them. Like I don't know their experience, but I kind of have a, um, have a knowing so I can connect with those people. And so right coming back uh, 
to your question around when I was diagnosed, I thought um, I've got this deep expertise in HR, but I also have this lived experience as neurodivergent. What can I do with that? And it's about helping organisations be more um, attuned to helping people who think differently. So the organisation to think differently about different thinking for leaders to be unafraid of leading difference. And for those who are neurodivergent, to be able to bring their whole selves to work because we've hidden ourselves and kept ourselves down for so long. And now's the perfect time for us to start going, we've got some really cool things to offer, especially in this crazy world. I'm going to let you jump in there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think what's really interesting, and and I wanted to to go to this as almost the next question, was around that language. And I think it's one of the things that every time we come up, we learn more about a different community or a different grouping or a different way of looking at something. I think that obviously getting the language right is really important. And one of the things I noticed was you describe people with dyslexia, with ADHD, for example. What are some of the other terms that we need to be across or to understand or use in a particular way? Cool question. Um, so the, the, there's the big three, uh, autism, um, ADHD, and dyslexia. But also with dyslexia are dyscalculia, dysgraphia, dyspraxia. There's, um, and, and autism itself is a, is a spectrum. And what we tend to do is we think of, um, like I grew up thinking autism was like Rain Man, which is the most extreme and, the, you know, one of the rarest ways that autism itself uh, manifests as well. We've got a lot of people, if you look at the bell curve uh, or the spectrum um, of autism, who are would be classified or actually people would be very surprised to hear that they have autism because it's like, well, you don't show up. You, you're not, not weird like that. You're not awkward. You don't blurt things out. You know, you actually have empathy. And like, it's a ridiculous thing to, to suggest that people with autism don't have empathy. But because if you get if you see people with autism together, the empathy empathy is just off the charts um, because they get each other. And that's that's the thing. But there's also um, Tourette's. Sometimes they include bipolar and also um, PTSD, so post-traumatic stress disorder, um, which is you know from an, a particular event. But some people have events happen in their lives that are so extreme and so triggering and charging that it means that the actual brain wiring, the way chemicals are pro- produced and processed in the brain actually changes, changes on a permanent basis, right? And so that's why that's included in there. But across this whole umbrella term of neurodiversity, it's about the way the brain fires, is triggered, produces and processes particular chemicals, but also experiences the world that is not typical. So uh, I guess the what as humans we, we love to do is peer one against the other, right? So there's neurodiverse and there's neurotypical. Most people are neurotypical. However, everybody's neurodiverse, right? Nobody has the same brain. And so it's really about being neurodivergent. Like where do we diverge in our brains and our minds and how we experience the world compared to most? That's essentially, um, I guess, the key with the language. Mm, that's such a key definition. And I, I loved the earlier that you were in, indicating around that impact. There was a RNZ interview yesterday, actually, I think in the afternoon with someone. I'm not sure if you heard it. I haven't listened to it yet. Um, but one of the things they were talking about for people with ADHD is, is they described it as having a Ferrari brain with bicycle brakes. I thought that's a, it's a quite a nice way of describing it. But one of the things I've really had to learn is, yeah, there is the superpowers that go alongside it. 
and that can enable your well-being in lots of ways once you learn how to you know work with it but it can also impact on your well-being and, and what are you finding in that space what are some things that you've seen around how that neurodiversity neurodivergence and well-being is linked um it's um inextricably linked if we think about 80% of neurodivergent people are undiagnosed, so they have no idea what's going on for them. They just know that they don't fit. And the impact that that has of not fitting, not just in life, but, but in particular in the, in the workplace, if we focus on that, knowing that um, they're working extra hard in order just to appear competent, to appear normal, um, there's a huge pressure. Like it's an, there's an emotional toll, there's a heart, there's a head toll, there's a physical toll on that as well. There's a worry of what am I going to, to do? What am I going to be faced with? How am I going to get through the day, right? So imposter syndrome is rife within the neurodivergent categories or, or cohorts within workplaces. And every workplace has a contingent of neurodivergent staff. Like we just don't know often who they are, if they're undiagnosed or they're really good at masking as well. There were some great stats in a book called um, ADHD 2.0 by a guy called Ned Hallowell. He was quoting Dr. Russell Barkley, who's kind of a, a preeminent, for a good couple of decades, he's, he's been the researcher or the lead voice around uh, diagnosis, but also managing ADHD. And he said that, from a public health standpoint, ADHD is pretty bad in the US, um, sort of underplaying it a little bit just by calling it pretty bad. Uh, but he goes on to say that smoking um, decreases life expectancy uh, by about two and a half years. And if you smoke 20 cigarettes or more a day for a number of years, you decrease your life expectancy by about six and a half years. Heart disease and obesity affect life expectancy by about three years, even high cholesterol, which is kind of challenged these days as well, is said to reduce your life expectancy by about one year, right? And then he goes on to say, having ADHD reduces life expectancy more than the top five public health killers in the US combined, because he said that for a third of people with ADHD, your life expectancy is reduced by about 13 years on average. And two-thirds of people with ADHD have their life expectancy reduced by 21 years, which is ridiculous because almost a quarter of a century taken off your life simply by having something that you're born with, right? The way you are physically, physiologically, neurologically wired is, and, and that's, a, that's a shocker. And the reason for that is because uh, we are risk takers, so we're at greater risk of uh, accidental death or injury, but also suicide statistics, suicide numbers, cases, et cetera, are um, overrepresented by people with ADHD. Now, that's just ADHD in itself. And so it's huge. Yet ADHD is also considered the most treatable in psychiatry. Like we have the best um, medications and strategies with the best, most, the highest efficacy. So it's a highly sort of treatable, but it's also misunderstood generally in society. And so being neurodivergent comes with a, with a whole lot of pressure that, and especially in a world, like if we think now, I think of teens with social media, the need, the drive, the desire just to fit in um, and not feeling like you fit in, the pressure of that can be huge. And it's the same in our workplace where we expect people just to, to, to fit a particular mould. Um, and so mental health, uh, huge impact. General well-being, we're also not great at taking care of ourselves. Um, 
because we're always go, go, go. And um, we put off the things that we think we can do later or if there are repeatable tasks like exercise, like healthy eating, this time now doesn't necessarily matter. I think also about ADHD, we have a, there's a concept called time blindness uh, where a lot of people with ADHD, the, the um, concept of time is now and not now. So two minutes and two years from now have the same sort of gravitas. They're the, they're the same thing. Um, I have very little, I don't have a consequence radar. I've got very low tolerance for risk awareness. And so what that means is I'm always in the moment. Planning stuff is, is you know, is um, not a waste of time, but it's really useful if I can, but I find it really hard to stick two things. And so there's a whole lot of like actually planning and prioritizing our own well-being is something we we really struggle with because excuse the pun, we're just not wired that way. Does that sort of answer? Yeah, totally. And I, I can tell you that in terms of that time blindness, one of the strategies I now use is I have a timer on my watch. And so if I know that I need to do something in a certain amount of time, like say I need to leave for an appointment in an hour, I will actually set the timer on my watch for an hour to remind myself and to know that that's how much time I have because yeah. <laughs> I can't trust myself to look at a lot a clock and you know lose yeah. time is just not a thing. Absolutely. That well, they also say that um, nothing ruins an ADHD as day more than a three pm appointment. Like just the <laughs> the like you get nothing done. It's like you're yeah, in a holding you, pattern, aren't you? Yeah, you all are. Day. Yeah, you're stuck. Absolutely yeah. stuck. And as an adult, as a professional, um, that's a lot of procrastination. That's a lot of time wasting. But also, I think like there have been cases where I've had ten minutes before a coaching call um, or a group session starting up, and I look outside and I go, "Oh, the wind, the the, the lawns, the lawns are a bit long. I reckon I can get the lawns done." Um, in that 10 minutes. Now, of course, it's a half hour job. And so I'm there and I'm mowing the lawns and I'm thinking I'm smashing it and I'm loving the pattern that I'm doing, that sort of thing. And then 25 minutes in, I'm thinking I'm meant to be somewhere else. you know. And so I've, this was a few years ago, right? And so I've got things in place to make sure I'm never late. In fact, I'm the most punctual person I, I know, but I've had to do that as well. But also there's the flip side. Like with my dyslexia, people think, well, you might you can assume that I'm a really bad reader, which I'm not a great reader. I'm a slow reader and I find reading really, really taxing. And because for every word, I have to create an image for that. And that obviously that image changes depending on what the subsequent word is, right? Because we're describing an, an, an image um, or a collage of things there as well. So what that means is when I see a particular word, the combination of letters there, which I may not necessarily read correctly, but I kind of just, I, I, I see that and the image happens. But if a word is spelt, um, is misspelled, it's in, incorrect, um, I can't create an image from that. And as a result, I notice the, the misspelling. So while I'm a slow writer and I'm a slow reader, I'm a really good editor. Like I'm amazing at finding spelling mistakes and things that don't gel because the flow of creating the image through a sentence um, means it's hard for me and so I think that's a like that's one way of taking something that is seen as a negative and popping it into a, a positive there are lots of really good dyslexic editors um, because we come about things a wee bit differently mm. and that's so powerful is actually one of the other terms I was just thinking about when you're talking about the timeline is my other favorite one out of ADHD is the ADHD tax 
which is all the all the things that we hyper focus on for a very short period of time and then you you know habits that we take up or whatever which last all of about five minutes and then, <laughs> and then they hit the pile of other things that we're no longer interested in but we've hyper focused on something else uh-huh. so I thought maybe would you better talk a little bit about that and I suppose that's that's almost that superpower thing right you know there are certain things that we can do so the hyper focusing which enable us to be amazing mm-hmm. but there are also things that are challenges and that term superpower not everyone with ADHD or you know loves that idea but but yeah, talk a little bit about that. It would be really interesting to understand. Yeah, I mean, thought. so you can call a superpower a gift, a talent, a trait, um, a particular skill maybe honed over time as well. A lot of those uh, sort of superpowers, people with ADHD or um, dyslexia, even autism, any sort of neurodivergence, we don't actually know exists because we have a, um, we don't focus on those. We think we think the things we see in other people are what society values, right? And so we focus on those things. Whereas the rare things that we can do that come really naturally, right? So that are easy for us to do. We think nobody's interested in that. Like that doesn't necessarily matter. So, um, so we downplay our, our superpowers and, and our abilities. And I think also with that, um, that ADHD tax, it's, it, I think like that's absolutely f- fascinating, especially in the, as you describe it, Sarah, sort of the popping I- ideas out and needing to get that out in otherwise it's lost. Because the way my mind works is um, I've got images firing all the time. If I don't grab onto those, they're, they're gone, right? Um, and so if we think about that ADHD tax, oh, here's a specific example. So I have, I have a, a business manager and um, I'm always firing through to them the uh, all these crazy ideas, things I would love to do, things I think we need to do. Now, they are of highest priority. It's like drop everything, do this. Now, our, we have an agreement that, that all my ideas, whether I fire them through on text, on WhatsApp, voice messages, anything, they go into a, into a sort of a database of Callum's crazy ideas. If I don't mention those within the next week, they just get deleted, right? Because I fire them out um, because they will be it's almost like the process of getting getting it out is done. I, th- I open emails. As I read an email, I'm responding to that in my head and I think I've responded. And, and um, I just leave I leave people hanging, right? And so I've got to make sure, I've really got to um, make sure that I'm, I'm conscious of following uh, up on those sorts of things. Now, often with that um, Callum's Crazy Ideas file, they'll come back to me and I will never remember. It'll be like, you're reading these things out to me. And that's the first time I've heard it. Like, or I'll go, no, I'm not interested in that anymore. It doesn't matter, right? So we need that week. Otherwise, um, the team will go off and do a whole lot of work. And then I'll be going, oh, I don't care about that, <laughs> you know, in a week's time, which is so disheartening for them, right? And we had to come up with this process because they were like, we're doing all this work. And after a week ago, it's no longer valid. And it's not me trying to excuse the expression shit on their their work, but it's me just going no no I've no moved on because we just have to get some things out, and it's the same as the the fidgety kid as well. We've got to move and blurt some things out because uh, if we don't get it out, it'll get lost because we can't hold on to. It's called working memory. Uh, I, I have very little working memory, and so I get lost in conversation. I get lost in uh, the 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 back and forth. As well, I get lost in processes. I have sequential dyslexia, which means that um, checking in in at uh, the Air New Zealand kiosk, I get lost in the screens. 
one of my kryptonites is going into an organization and having to sign in on an iPad. I know all the screens that are going, going to appear. I know what should come up, but I don't know if I've already done that one. And so I just panic and I get it wrong and I do things and I get stuck or I don't see, you know, the next button, all these sorts of things. And so there's a, there's a working memory element in there, which is my ADHD tax. tax. I have to get it, get it out. Otherwise it's gone. And so we can seem impatient. We can seem absent-minded, but if also you can flip that into there's uh, there's an immense ability uh, in that to quickly move on, right? To uh, to go if that didn't work, let's move on to this, right? So we're not the dwellers. We may reflect and ruminate, you know, late at night, so we can't sleep. But actually, in the moment, in say a high-paced environment we don't necessarily take on what's going on there so we're able to to go through a particular process great in a crisis great in fast-paced work great at brainstorming great at pulling apart ideas but not attaching ourselves um, to a particular idea like a lot of people do yeah amazing in emergency departments so yeah i was at this founders dinner last night and it was um of all the founders of you know, sort of high growth businesses in Queenstown. And mm-hmm. they were talking about just about everyone at the table. It started, it was so interesting because I was talking about my story. And then Olivia, who's the um, CEO of um, Startup Queenstown Lakes, she has ADHD and the business team has ADHD. And they were talking about actually probably about 95% of us in the room had ADHD. And we we're talking yeah. about how that whole entrepreneurial, you know, yeah. piece is often yeah. led by people, but you need that other person who grounds your ideas and turns them into something. Otherwise, you become an entrepreneur of lots of things and a developer of nothing. (laughs) Oh, no, that's exactly right. And so this is why in our workplaces, we've got to harness neurodiversity because there's some great stuff that we can do, value add, but there's there's also the things that, you know, non-neurodivergent people also need to do and can help with, right? So it's, it's them and us as opposed to them or us. And so this is, you know, this is a perfect um, piece in the conversation around there's, it's not about saying, oh, you know, poor neurodiverse people who have been forgotten about or, or, or bashed down, kept down, glass ceiling, all that sort of thing, which is often self-imposed as well. But there are some mechanisms that don't work for us in workplaces. Um, but it's a, it's a value add um, not as not. We need to find more people who are neurodiverse in our organisations. It's we've already got them. How do we harness them a wee bit more? And if we think about that entrepreneurial spin, uh, spirit that you've just raised, Sarah, that like all the business gurus that um, unfortunately most of them tend to be males because that's the perspective that a lot of um, books have been written traditionally anyway, um, you think of your Elon Musk and your Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and all that, they're all neurodivergent. If you think about, because of that, you know, things don't work for them. The system doesn't work. So they try and break the system or create a new system. Um, So that entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well um, with ADHD, with dyslexia, um, with uh, hyper-focus of ADHD and autism as well. If you think about um, people who thrive in, in acting, you know, Tom Cruise, Orlando Bloom, Kira Knightley, bunch of people who are all neurodiverse. Johnny Depp, you know, dodgy. Will Smith, don't know if we still, you know, claim claim him up there as well. But there's, you know, ADHD and dyslexia is really, really big there. Same with um, singers, Will I Am, Sia, um, Justin Timberlake. No, they're all neurodivergent. Think of sports stars, David Beckham, Lewis Hamilton, Simone Biles, that excellent gymnast. She accredits ADHD 
her success to her ADHD. Firstly, getting her into gymnastics, but also her ability to train bloody hard to just nail stuff that don't feel right, right? Because I think ADHD is not just about the mind, but it's 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 physical as well. There's a whole lot of, um, there's a connection with the body and balance. Like I'm convinced it's it's holistic. Michael Phelps, you know, eight Olympic gold medals as well, that he attributes his success in the pool to his ADHD. And so we can look at these at these people and go, they should not have succeeded, but they succeed because of their neurodivergence. And I think that's the beauty of it. Now, if we go back to the entrepreneurs with the books and the business gurus, Richard Branson is another one there. These are people who neurotypicals and the majority of people want to be like, and they can never be like them. They can't replicate that success, but you can create your own success. I think it's just ironic that we've stereotyped negatively neurodivergence and yet we've held people, Einstein, absolutely, Da Vinci, apparently. Who knows? It's, yeah, so it, it's out. So we hold, hold people up, but we also keep people down. And it's this within this middle ground where we need to close the gap. And I think we need to close the gap because of the well-being impacts of not um, harnessing, not allowing people to be themselves uh, at work, not accepting neurodivergence because we tell people they don't fit. And I think actually what we should do is throw out this whole concept of fit. It's utter rubbish. Utter rubbish. <laughs> well, I want to ask two questions there. <laughs> so the Go first on. Bit is, yeah, so the first bit is around harnessing. So how do we harness? What are some really good examples of how we've harnessed it? And then almost the second piece of that is have we got rid of fit then? Or how does that fit <laughs> into a really good environment for those who are um, neurodiverse or neurodivergent? Like I, I believe in um, values fit and culture add in terms of fit, but I don't believe... But what, what fit gets interpreted as by weak managers is recruiting people with minds like mine, right? People who I have some sort of affinity bias to, who I go, I, I, they seem like me, so they'll be easy to manage. As opposed to where are our gaps in our thinking? Where are our gaps in behaving? Where are our gaps in how we come about understanding a problem or problem solving or whatever the core of the reason our team exists. Where are our gaps in that? And how do we fill those things? And it's a leader's job to create the environment where everyone thrives, right? Which means connecting with the individual. It also means making it safe for the for people to disclose some stuff. And it starts at that recruitment process by saying, here are our values. The Like in the application form, if we still have those, these are our organizational values. What's really important to us is this one in this particular process because that's about bringing your whole self. If you identify with or have been diagnosed with any of these um, neurodivergent conditions, please let us know. That's not because we want to use that as a, an excuse or a reason to discount you because it's um, what we want to have a conversation about in terms of accommodations, but also how we make you feel great to come and be the best version. Like, how can we actually harness that? Um, so some organizations uh, are doing that, but not many. Often neurodiverse or neurodiversity being harnessed is seen as um, uh, tech companies um, looking for dyslexic skills because they're good coders, good at finding holes and things, just the way I read um, as well and, and am a good editor. Uh, often ADHD is targeted or tagged with, creativity and so we think um, marketing 
and we think art, design, all those sorts of things. And that, that's, that's all true. Uh, often we think uh, finance and IT is a big sort of gateway for or opportunity for people with autism. All that's true as well. However, uh, there's a whole lot of spaces where we can harness neurodiversity more. And um, yes, Air New Zealand uh, are doing some great things there. New Zealand Defence Force are starting to open up about things. Uh, if you look at uh, GCSB and SIS, they are targeting some uh, some specific uh, types of neurodiversity as well for that hyper-focus, for that, I guess, particular bent or particular skill. But that's getting really narrow and it's not about the whole person. So what I'm looking for is um, for organisations to look at neurodiversity as the new, I guess, the next step in how we create an environment for everyone to thrive. Because anything you do for a neurodivergent staff member benefits a neurotypical one because it's about having the conversation. It's about asking what's going on. This is what I've noticed uh, in you. This is where I see the show up. What's going on? Is there anything you, you want to tell me? And to, to make that safe, but also to go, I think you're amazing at this. Like, how do you always join the dots between things that on the initially to me, like it doesn't make sense. I don't see how you join those dots. And here's something about ADHD is that we often cannot explain how we have linked things. And, and so it's the, that's where we come unstuck and say a brainstorming session. We go, these things are inextricably linked, but we can't explain why. We just know they are. And so we need to develop the trust within the teams for people to go, Callum's got this. Like, I don't get it, but I know 15 minutes time, we're going to get there or, or whatever it is, right? And so it's about the harnessing is actually about uncovering. So make it safe to uncover and disclose, to unlock neurodiversity as well, because some people are stuck, they're trapped. That could be the systems that are used in the organization, or it could be the person themselves, their sense of self-worth, um, what they think is actually of value, where they can contribute. And so there's uncover, unlock, and then there's unleash. And it's like, just let's not have jobs or workplaces that constrain people because we're looking in our teams where we always converge. Actually, where do we diverge? And how do we make, how do we make that a good thing? in our team like how do we leverage our difference what is like let's just imagine um, a, a lot of people here will be part of a, a team so think about the team you're in or even just imagine that everybody here in the gallery we're all one team this team and the team that you're in neither of those are replicated anywhere on the planet there are not many workplaces there are not many leaders and teams that are making the most of that uniqueness and that's what harnessing neurodiversity can do, uh, it can bring to the surface how we view the difference that we have across our team. Um, because the opportunity and the potential in this team and your specific team, that's huge, but not many people are, are leveraging the difference because we're trying to fit ourselves in to, to into this sort of sea of sameness. And so harnessing is acknowledging we differ on some stuff. What do we think of those differences? And what are we going to do about it? Because it's not about shutting down or closing differences. It's about going, let, let's let Callum do this. Let's let Chris do that. Sarah, you go off and do this. And let's come back and go, where did we get to? Yeah, because there's, yeah, there's too much goodness that's just going to waste. I don't know if that answers your question, Sarah. Well, actually, no, and now my brain's moved on to another question on the back of that, <laughs> <It's easy. laughs> which is, yeah, which is I was thinking about that, that whole strengths and weaknesses and difference thing. And isn't it like from an HR perspective, 
certainly like in the early 2000s, we were really focused on personality. Myers-Briggs, that's how we yeah. do difference. This feels like a maturity of actually understanding what difference looks like. Certainly personality still plays a part mm-hmm. of it, but there are mm-hmm. other aspects as well, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Like, So the most um, you know, well-known aspect of Myers-Briggs is introversion versus extroversion. I always thought I was an introvert, but I'm quite, and I always showed up that way. So I actually tricked you know, MBTI many, many times to, to, to come out as being an introvert because I can remember going, oh, I get my energy from my downtime, that sort of thing. But actually what I was doing is getting to the end of the day exhausted, um, you know, performing, playing the role, looking like I fitted in. And so I was just absolutely knackered. But once I learned about my ADHD and, you know, things started to make sense and I've explored that a hell of a lot more, um, I've realized that I'm heavily extroverted because I now own myself, I'm now entirely, almost entirely, not 100%, but almost entirely comfortable with who I am and what my ADHD means that I am within me and with other people, that I'm able to be that in front of people. And that shows up as being a bit more extroverted. I want to be around people a bit more. I get my energy from being with groups as well, which is almost the opposite of what, what introversion is. And so I can play both games as well, which most people can, right? Because it's a performance and it's a, it's a sliding scale. Um, it's just where you get your energy from. Um, so I think there is a maturity there, but the maturity of where you fit in all those sort of diagnostic tools is, well, how, where, where, do, you, where do you fit with yourself? Where do you, you know, what's going on? What are you continuing to hide? And why is that? Because I don't think any of those sort of personality um, diagnostics necessarily dig into or or help. I think what they do is they reinforce the person we want to be as well. And, and it's also in the way that those questions are structured as well. But I think this, um, this conversation around neurodivergence uh, and the implications on well-being um, really stem from how do we make it really easy for people to accept themselves and for us as organizations, as employers, as managers to say, we love all that about you. Because here's the one thing I do know is that in masking whatever's going on for you and hiding all of that sort of thing, you think you're doing an amazing job at that. And yet there are often the things that the, often the things that we're hiding are the things that people love about us. So they know that anyway. And so when we say, oh, I've di- been diagnosed with ADHD, they go, well, of course, like you're the only person in the world who doesn't know that, <laughs> you know, or, or people tell us the things that we, that they love about us. And you go, I've spent 45 years trying to hide that, trying to mask that. Cause I didn't think anybody valued that. And they say, that's exactly what we love them for, Callum. So, mm. you know, we, we create the sense of self as self-protection, which often is not um, what other people see. Uh, in us, and the I think the mental, the emotional toll on us is huge. The wasted energy and effort and sleepless nights for entire lives is just unnecessary. So if we can just make it, um, if we can make it okay for people to go, I've got this going on for me, and I might need some accommodations over here, but it also means that I'm able to do these things because neurodiver- the negatives of neurodivergence of any of those conditions. The negatives are, are real, 100% real. I do not downplay those. Struggle with it every single day. Lots of micro failures all the time. However, they are nothing compared to the, um, the, the, the ripples, the spectrum of what neurodivergence can be. 
if people own it and we allow our staff and our people to own who they are at work that's like that's the key that's the gold and it leads actually really nicely into a conversation around that psychological safety you know we we, we often come to this from a mental health perspective you know being able to mm-hmm. talk about if you're feeling depressed or anxious or any of those things but actually yeah that is about bringing that whole self and being really upfront about it because interesting if I go back to the dinner last night quite a few of the founders were saying that they have trouble sharing with their staff that they have because they they want to be seen as a a, a pillar that people can lean against like the solid one the stable one the one who's got yeah. everything together whereas it's quite mm-hmm. funny I was saying I feel like my ADHD often doesn't give me a filter so <laughs> I have no problem telling anybody but obviously there's there's still that reticence that people have about sharing this because it doesn't feel like a safe thing to share and and so what are some of the things that you've seen in workplaces even like little micro things that Mm -hmm. organizations have done and perhaps some of the advice you might give to people in the room around what are some of the little things we can do to start to make people feel safe to talk about it and to welcome people to bring their whole selves to work yeah well I mean if you're the leader of anybody there's you know Brene Brown's you know been harping on about this for for quite some time but you know the power of vulnerability and often being vulnerable isn't necessarily vulnerable as well. It's like, or, or we don't need to be brave or show courage um, to be our whole selves. But the model of, of the leader who is, you know, bulletproof or the superhero, like that, those days, days are gone. The, the, the most relatable leader is, you know, the, the leader of um, the future. And that's why I think that it's really important for us to be able to um, talk about what's going on for us so that we close the gap between the superhero leader and um, the team, the rest of the staff, right? And talk about, um, I'm really struggling for this or I'm taking a mental health day or I'm doing a, you know, whatever it is. So the the uh, the key, I, I think about courageous conversations, like remember that back in, back in the day, like what a shocker, uh, what a waste of time and energy because we put people on those programs who are never going to be able to have the courageous conversations. The only way we talk about the stuff that's really hard to talk about is if we talk about the stuff that's really easy to talk about a lot more. So talk about the positives. And as a result, we get onto the negatives, right? Because it's about starting the conversation. So in um, where I've seen uh, teams and organizations, I guess, be vulnerable to create that psychological safety is where they make it part and parcel of their team meetings, daily check-ins. How are we going? What's hard for you right now? Asking questions like, what are you working on? How's that going? How can I help? And the how can I help is not how can I do your job for you, but what can I do to um, minimize the burden, to take some stuff out? Can I block some time out of your calendar? Can I be the contact point for some people who are going to harass you for the next three hours? Just to buy you some time, or what do you what do you, do you need some clarity on some stuff? But having some real conversations around what's hard in your job, rather than thinking that we have to be the superhero in the job and always get stuff right, because our jobs are framed up completely wrong. Like that job description, which says you do this, 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 and you need to be able to cl- complete this process from start to finish, plus do anything else as required, just makes us. Um, robotic, but also incompetent because we can't do all of that to the same level. So having, I've seen teams talk about their job descriptions and going, right, there's some stuff in here that we can't change. It has to be done. But are there some people who are really into that part of it and some people who are really into this stuff? And like, how can we share work around? So dividing up the job description as opposed to dividing up the work across the team, et cetera. So it's just sort of flipping our take on you know, what is the work? That can make it 
a bit easier. But I think also having the conversations and New Zealand organisations and New Zealand being the most passive aggressive nation on the planet means that we fear conflict. Uh, it means that we need to appear to be competent and look like um, we're doing things. We fear the conversation we need to have tomorrow or asking for help, all these sorts of things. And so, so we don't. So leaders that ask for help, leaders that explain why they're delegating things to a certain person, like that's, that's really useful. Like actually going, the, going to the next level of the conversation as opposed to reinforcing the difference between the hierarchy, the leader becoming a member of the team, doing some of the work as well. Like it's just a, it's just a slice of the, the team pie. That's what leadership is as opposed to the, the owner of the pie or the person who's going to eat the damn thing. Like that's how we create the psychological safety in order for us to raise to the surface our struggles, but also the things that we're really good at that we might be hiding. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, head to rowwellbeing, that's R-O-W-wellbeing.com and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again. And we look forward to catching up with you really soon.